Welcome to this special crossover episode of our podcasts. If you're a listener to the Bookshop's author interview series and would like to spend the first half of 2022 reading or rereading James Joyce's Ulysses with us and more than 100 other writers, artists and performers, just search Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses wherever you listen. Likewise, if you came to us through our Ulysses podcast and would like to hear more interviews like this one with some of the world's most exciting contemporary authors, then just search for Shakespeare and Company in your podcast app. Thanks for listening. In June 2003, today's guest was living and working here at the bookshop, when it hosted a festival celebrating, among other things, the work of James Joyce. He listened to readings from Ulysses as well as speeches lauding the novel, and by the time he retired to his bed that evening, he had, he writes, caught the Joyce bug. It seems to be an incurable condition. Indeed it does. For 19 years later, that young man, Patrick Hastings, is not only the chair of the English department at Gilman School and the creator of the website UlyssesGuide.com, but is now the author of The Guide to James Joyce's Ulysses, a comprehensive, highly readable companion to this modernist masterpiece. Hastings' guide is the perfect primer for first-time readers daunted by the heft, both physical and reputational, of Ulysses, for those who have tried and tried again to read it but without success, as well as those who may have made it to the end but have been left wondering what on earth it is they have just read. It offers just enough detail to allow readers to find their way through the novel's 18 sections, and just enough academic and scholarly insight so that one feels roundly educated but not sucked down into the Caribbean whirlpool of Joyceania. For those of you planning on listening to our great Ulysses read-along, I can't think of a better companion for that literary odyssey than Patrick Hastings, and I'm delighted to say he joins me today. Patrick, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to have you back, because of course, as I said in the introduction, your journey with Ulysses, your odyssey with Ulysses, started at the bookshop in 2003. Um, could you just talk a little bit about that moment when, uh, as you write, the, the Joyce bug bit you. So I, I, I think I'm a little bit unusual in that I come to Ulysses by way of Shakespeare and Company and the magic of the bookstore and the way in which Ulysses and Joyce are infused in that magic and are a part of the history of, of Shakespeare and Company as an institution of modernism and postmodernism and as the written uh, written tradition. Uh, I was at Shakespeare and Company that summer of 2003 and was thrilled to arrive on the first day of the first ever Shakespeare and Company Literary Festival that Sylvia uh, Whitman had put on. And at the end of that week of wonderful readings and scholarly perspectives, uh, the bookstore celebrated Bloomsday, uh, mm -hmm. June 16th, which of course is the day on which Ulysses is set uh, in 1904. So there were all kinds of, of wonderful events throughout that day and throughout that week. Um, and I just uh, found myself enthralled with this novel that so many people have so many different approaches to and have had so many different readerly experiences with and just listened a lot those that week and then throughout that summer as people would recount their experience with this book. And I had never read it before. Uh, I went back to university and was working on an independent study on the history of Shakespeare and Company. And of course, a huge part of that history is the publication of Ulysses in 1922, which we're all excited to celebrate here uh, as we celebrate the 100th uh, anniversary of that, uh, that milestone and literary history. Um, so uh, I, I just found myself uh, kind of inspired by everything that I had heard and been exposed to at the bookstore, around the bookstore, late at night, uh, after the bookstore had closed, hearing people talk about <laughs> Joyce, uh, and undertook a, a reading of the novel uh, to go along with my uh, study uh, of the history of the bookstore and my writing about that. And it just proved endlessly interesting and rewarded and far even surpassed that initial interest and curiosity that I had uh, while living in the bookstore. Mm -hmm. You say in um, in your guide that um, you're you're orienting this book primarily towards the first time reader of Ulysses. When you were deciding what to include, were you thinking back to that 
summer or that, you know, later in that that year when you started reading the book and some of the difficulties you had, some of the pitfalls that you met when being a first time reader yourself? Yeah, I think the approach that I take to my project is maybe not anticipating the pitfalls, but illuminating the the magic of mm-hmm. the novel and illuminating those really wonderful moments, the, the ones that at least caught my uh, imagination and caught my eye and heart uh, as a first time reader and as a sixth time reader and as a 15th time reader, you know, all those uh, accumulating moments of, of reader's experience with this, with this text, I, I found, I, I guess I oriented toward the first time reader uh, principally to, to bring to life all the, the wonderful passages that, that are gripping and are, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, enriching of a reader's perspective on human beings. Not to put not to put it too grandly, uh, yeah. At at a moment, you know, when you when you started studying and started writing about Joyce, um, and I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to put this, but like the Joyce world, let's say, is not often considered one of the um, most friendly and tolerant of um, of academic disciplines. Was that something that you were intimidated by approaching when you were sort of when you when you had started uh, writing about Ulysses as well as being an enthusiastic reader? Well, I, I come at this from a little bit of a unique perspective and a unique position because I do teach at the secondary school level. I'm a high school English teacher, um, and I started writing my website principally for my students who are seniors in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, eighteen. 17 year olds who are, who have signed up to take this course on Mm -hmm. Joyce. Um, So I was writing principally to provide my students with guidance as they work through the novel, which would kind of clear the deck of some of the who's, what's, where's, and why's in the novel so that we could have richer conversations in class, you know, Mm -hmm. true class discussion rather than me lecturing because it kind of was an opportunity to, to, do the lecture on the website for my students. And then they'd come into class and we could talk uh, and they could share their perspectives. Um, So when that website, which I did make, you know, uh, publicly available on the web started to gain some traction and some usership across the world, uh, I was already approaching it from a certain um, posture of Mm -hmm. let's make this accessible. Let's answer what my students need. And it turns out that, uh, at least on the website, and my um, hope is that the book, even more so, uh, provides what uh, a, a first-time reader needs without getting over uh, burdened by all the academic uh, kind of discourse that that does surround it that can be intimidating. But that wasn't the audience that I was writing for, and that wasn't uh, the perspective. And I didn't really feel the weight of that um, as I was writing the website, I felt a little bit more pressure as I go through the, the peer review process for the uh, book. Um, I felt more pressure to to satisfy what a university level classroom would would maybe want to have in a guidebook. Uh, and I, I'm hopeful that I've added a bit more um, of the scholarly perspectives that that might be beneficial to a uh, undergraduate student in particular um, taking this class in college. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I mean, the the hope was that I was able to uh, acknowledge and be and benefit from all of that academic work that has been done and the the incredible scholarship that surrounds this novel without feeling that I, you know, had an obligation to include all of it or to to be too heavy on that side, to really enjoy the novel as a work of art. That was really my my principal focus. Mm-hmm. Now, some of our listeners may be thinking, and I suspect these are listeners who perhaps have yet to to open Ulysses, may be thinking, why would I need a guide to a book that I have not yet read? Like, sure, you know, read the book first, then read a guide to it. What is it about this book that means almost uniquely uh, it sort of rewards having a guide from the very first? So I guess that this is a novel that it, it rewards having a guide because it is built to reward a rereading. Mm-hmm. And so there's no way to have 
reread the book on your first reading. So my right. guide, I've been trying in a lot of ways to bring to light some of the details and the resonances and um, the information that a rereader might have that a first time reader wouldn't um, so, mm -hmm. so that they can appreciate and not be thrown off uh, too early on in their reading to allow them to hopefully allow my readers to to appreciate from the get go uh, how intricately engineered and constructed mm -hmm. the novel is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, one thing I thought that was very valuable um, was at a moment, uh, I think it's the Proteus section, if I remember rightly, you say sort of, this is a moment where first time readers will often throw in the towel with Ulysses, because in a way there is something kind of deceptively easy about the, the opening of Ulysses. When you're in the Martello Tower with Buck and Stephen and Haynes, you know, there are there are a few moments when um, you might sort of have to read back over what you've just read to figure out what's going on. But broadly, it doesn't depart too much from what we might think of as kind of, you know, traditional sort of novelistic construction. And then the Proteus section comes along and it hits you and kind of leaves you feeling quite disoriented. Yeah, there are all kinds of of tricks in that episode. Um you know, there's the passage where he, a lot of first time readers misunderstand that he hasn't actually gone to his aunt and uncle's house, that he's just mm -hmm. imagined that entire scene uh, in his mind. Um, you know, little moments like that, that, that people can say, wait, I thought he was in his aunt and uncle's house. Why are we back on the beach? You know, I, I, and, and so, you know, the, and that's not even to mention the incredible density of the philosophical musings that he's mm -hmm. pinging around in his brain um, and the memories that he's recalling uh, that, that we might get another snippet of that memory, you know, 150 pages later that, mm -hmm. Oh, right. That was what he was thinking about earlier this morning on the beach on the strand um, that. So uh, yeah, the, Proteus throws a lot of people off and, and they, uh, that is a, a moment. I know that there are a lot of copies of Ulysses that have gotten up to like page 47 <laughs> and then, and then chucked into a used book uh, bin. Um, you can see the creases in the you spine. Can, yeah. <laughs> you can see where they bail. Um, so, you know, I think that, that part of uh, my project has been figuring out just how much does a first time reader need uh, to keep going and establish a momentum in their reading, but how much do they need to still have an appreciation for everything that is still in this novel and how mm -hmm. much Joyce was sharing with us uh, in, in this work of art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before we come on to um, some of the other things that first-time readers might need, some of the kind of literary skill set, um, we might say, I'd like to set it in context uh, by talking a little bit about Joyce um, both as a both as a sort of as a man, but also as a as a writer up to up to this point. So you said you were studying the um, the the early history of uh, of Shakespeare and Company, and so Sylvia Beach's shop um, on the Rue de l'Odéon and the Rue du Pitrin and before that. How important is it to understanding Ulysses to get a sense of what Joyce was like as a man and the kind of life he had lived? I think what's crucial to understand Ulysses today is, and to understand it in the context of Joyce's career and life, is to understand that he was paving a, a, the way for so much of what literature and art and um, uh, the individual uh can be that we are still reaping the benefits of a hundred years on. Um, and the sorts of, you know, as he's bucking kind of the Victorian, you know, waning Victorian eras, uh, kind of, uh, sense of you know, sensibilities. Um, he was very clear eyed in his mission to reflect reality as it is and to, um, you know, as he describes it, a nicely polished looking glass to mm -hmm. hold that mirror up to the world and show us all who we are, good, bad, and ugly, uh, to, sh to, to reveal the sort of thoughts that a normal person has uh, over the course of a day um, and to show the sorts of family dynamics that were often difficult and 
uh, unpleasant. Um, he was always interested in, in reflecting back on the world uh, and on humanity, what we really are. And mm -hmm. so that he, he was dedicated to that mission, I think, in a lot of ways that made him in some ways a martyr for his art because his books were uh, censored and mm -hmm. he had a lot of difficulty finding publishers who were willing to put themselves on the line uh, in an era when the government was was pretty uh, insistent on monitoring and censoring uh, the, the sorts of works that would be widely read and available mm -hmm. to, to an increasingly literate populace and, uh, and, and that, you know, worried about that corrupting influence, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so he was, you know, the, the 1922 publication of Ulysses and Sylvia Beach and her, um, you know, heroic role in this was, you know, that we can't overstate, I think, as we celebrate this, this centenary is her eagerness to bring this sort of work to the world and mm -hmm. to, to, to expose as many people as possible, uh, a thousand subscribed members at a mm -hmm. time, uh, to, to this novel. Mm -hmm. I think just on the subject of, of Sylvia Beach, I think one thing that that story highlights is how Ulysses, in a sense, is a, a is a work of world literature in as much as like, even though it's so specific in many ways to Ireland and Dublin, it took an American woman displaced to France to 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 publish it. And I think that it really highlights that it's sort of it's not something which is uh, location specific, epoch specific, but really sort of connects with people from all over the world in sort of very fundamental ways. It's one of the fascinating uh, things that have been revealed through my, you know, being able to track the analytics of my website um, mm. and see just how global the readership is of Ulysses mm. who are not just reading it or, or dabbling in it, but who are undertaking a serious study of it and who are willing to go outside and, and find some sort of guidance to help them appreciate everything that's in the novel. So it, it mm -hmm. continues to be that. It certainly was that. Um, and the community of writers and artists who were surrounding Sylvia Beach's Shakespeare and Company, uh, you know, how international they were. Um, that that community that, that Joyce was central to um, mm -hmm. and was a leader of, uh, that internationalism uh, certainly continues today as we, you know, are a hundred years out from that first publication. Mm -hmm. You, uh, you said that about Joyce's interest in writing about the sort of, um, the common people and unremarkable events, um, and defined in that way, um, readers who already know sort of portrait of the artist as a young man and Dubliners will see at least kind of, I guess, thematic overlaps uh, and then of course the uh, the character of Stephen Daedalus um, is uh, the protagonist of Portrait of the Artist and one of the protagonists of of Ulysses. Is it helpful to think of Ulysses almost as a sequel to the Portrait of the Artist or, or, or should we think of it in very different terms? Yeah I, I think what might be helpful is to think of those first three episodes of Ulysses as a sequel to mm -hmm. Portrait. Um, but to think of our introduction to Mr. Bloom in the Calypso episode as almost a really long uh, Dubliner story. Mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. here is just a, a, a family domestic situation uh, and, a, and a pretty common guy. Mm -hmm. who we're going to spend a full day with uh, as he goes about his business, that to me feels, and in moments, feel very Dubliners. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I think Ulysses then is, is you know, building upon his previous two works, in, in both inappropriate and um, uh, pushing boundaries, pushing beyond what he had already done before. Certainly, you know, he never, uh, but he did actually, you know, Joyce initially, conceived of the Mr. Bloom Stephen story as a, a Dubliner story mm -hmm. um, that he then said, actually, no, this is a much bigger piece. I think he had a grander vision for it and held back on, on that um, idea of a young man, you know, in trouble late at night and an older gentleman taking care of him. That was a Dubliner story that, that became Ulysses um, just as much as uh, Stephen's narrative is continued um, from portrait. 
And I guess one of the other sort of overlaps with portrait in a way is the um, the way that Joyce kind of is uh, elevating his characters or his ordinary people uh, into mythological status almost. Um, and I think that kind of brings us on to something um, which we maybe should clarify, particularly for those, again, those readers who who have yet to pick up the book. I mean, we talked of Proteus earlier and we talked of, I think we mentioned the Scylla and Charybdis sept chapters. And yet, you know, the title Ulysses itself, these are all Hellenic references. These are all Homeric references. Um, so could you just explain for people who are, have yet to tackle the book, that relationship between the uh, the Homeric tales, particularly the Odyssey, the character of Odysseus, and the um, yeah James Joyce's Ulysses. Yeah, of course. Uh, I, lo- I love the way that you've kind of conceived of this, um, and I, I fully agree. I feel like some awareness of the Odyssey is helpful. Um, it, it the the structure of Ulysses is kind of built on some scaffolding that is the Odyssey. Um, and you have some explicit parallels uh, of um, as son, although not Bloom's son, a young man in search mm-hmm. of a father figure and uh, a father figure, Mr. Leopold Bloom, who is seeking uh, to be reunited with a son that he has been without. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are, you know, Telemachus and Odysseus, Mr. Bloom and Stephen, like those sorts of correspondences are there and available. But I think more than anything else, as much as Joyce was seeking to uh, correspond with the Odyssey, he's doing so with characters who, by virtue of the fact that they're being uh, created and, and placed into a work of literature, into an epic, um, th- there is some mythologizing that takes place there. But more than anything for me, he's pointing out that these very common people are heroic in and of themselves, and that this is a modern-day Odysseus, just in his ability to endure a normal day and in a, a difficult situation with his wife, a, you know, a tough day on that front. Uh, this gives him uh, mythological status, and it gives maybe all of us as human beings in the modern world the opportunity to recognize our own acts of small heroism mm-hmm. uh, and our own triumphs as being uh, mythologically or, you know, uh, possessing of a larger significance. Um, mm-hmm. And there, I don't, I, I feel like you don't have to be a warrior to be a hero anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and that feels to me a core impulse of, of what Joyce is doing uh, with those, uh, that, you know, intricate web of illusion and, and correspondence to mm-hmm. to the Odyssey. One of the um, set of correspondences which is marked remarked upon less than than those with with the Odyssey is those with Hamlet. Um, and sort of from the again from the very first chapter, people will see references to uh, Stephen and his theory about um, about Hamlet and particularly the relationship between uh, Hamlet and his father and Shakespeare and his sons and and all of that which we won't go into in detail but it did put me in mind of something you write in the book about Joyce's real consciousness that he was writing himself into the canon in a sense and so so he's sort of drawing these correspondences with with Homer so one of the sort of foundational storytellers of Western culture. And then he's drawing these parallels with Shakespeare, who particularly for for Anglophone readers, but also beyond is again one of the sort of the the sort of the linchpins of the way we understand stories and the way we understand ourselves. And that's one thing I find really fascinating about Joyce is his lack of humility, kind of refreshing lack of humility about the the ambition and the scope uh, and the, I guess, the sort of the artistic achievement of what he was working on. Without a doubt. I think he knew, you know, from a, uh, if you read Portrait <laughs> and if you know something about Joyce's biography and the way in which he regarded his elders um, in <laughs> the Irish literary uh, world, uh, he knew what he had. He knew he was, uh, you know, again, it kind of comes back to that, how clear-eyed he was about his his artistic mission. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, Jerry Johnson writes in her introduction to the um, Oxford 
edition of, of Ulysses that to properly appreciate, again, we've kind of become desensitized to Ulysses as a book title. Mm-hmm. Um, her, she makes a point that uh, to really understand what a bold statement that was to title your novel Ulysses, we'd have to think, okay, well, what if he were to title it Hamlet? Well, that mm-hmm. w- then it hits a little bit differently. Well, that's that's quite a bold statement to say that you're writing <laughs> Hamlet. That's already been written, right? Um, I think a guy did that a couple hundred years ago. Uh, so I think that, yeah, he, he was, um, I think in some ways, flying a flag for modernism and mm-hmm. saying we can create great things that will be read for hundreds of years uh, and will be celebrated as defining a new era. And, mm-hmm. and that, that feels, as again, as we celebrate the centenary, that feels like he's accomplished that. I mean, it's yeah. still, the, the, one of the things that I find amazing about this book is you read it now and my students read it now uh, and it still feels contemporary. And yeah. you know the, the sorts of problems that they're facing professionally, personally, uh, nav- just navigating a city, uh, that all feels relevant to their mm-hmm. lives. Um, no, Bloom's not tweeting, but he is, <laughs> he is plugged into a, 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 you know, a news stream and a news cycle that changes every couple hours. And mm-hmm. that, you know, and he's an ad man and, you know, these guys know everybody, my students, uh, we all know the power of advertisement and, uh, of, persuasion and and capitalism and marketing and all the stuff that just is all over this book uh mm-hmm. the uh, secularism um you know then uh yeah it's just it's it's wonderful to see the way that that it does retain that initial oomph um that mm-hmm. yeah this is ulysses it is a bold statement um and it is calling back a couple thousand years of literary tradition, but it's making something new that remains new and remains mm. uh, invigorating and enriching. Mm. You put me in mind of that um, quotation uh, from T.S. Eliot that you include in the book, um, where, he, where he writes that if, if Ulysses is not a novel, that is simply because the novel is a form which will no longer serve. Mm. Um, and it really does feel like that um, I would contend in, in, a, in a sort of, in a similar way, perhaps a more ambitious way, two books like, uh, to precursors like maybe uh, Tristram Shandy, where you could feel the writer deconstructing the idea of what a novel is, what a novel should be, and what a novel can do uh, before your eyes. And I wonder if one of the reasons Ulysses still feels so fresh today is that even though you have these kind of... Uh, these writers coming out and sort of planting their flag and doing these amazing things, redefining what the novel can do, there's still the kind of the tradition of the, let's say, the the, the sort of realist, and I put that in inverted commas, novel, which has continued kind of chugging along alongside because obviously it works in certain ways and it presses certain buttons and it has its reasons for existing. But I think the sort of the, I suppose we have not, yet fully digested all of the um the innovations and quite how radical uh James Joyce was being when he was writing this book well and i, I think uh your great novel feeding time has some <laughs> s- some circe uh elements to it a blending of psychological events and real events like there are uh there are techniques and and opportunities that this novel, you know, presented that mm-hmm. I think novelists such as yourself are, are whether consciously or not, are saying, yeah, I can kind of play with whether or not this is happening in real life or if mm-hmm. this is happening just in someone's head. Mm-hmm. Um, that that feels very, very much a part of what literature still is, is uh, ex- new territory that, that literature feels like it's exploring still. I should uh, I should point out to our listeners that unlike Bloom, I'm not an ad man, and I in no way uh, paid Patrick for that piece of uh, product placement there. So <laughs> I just want to be clear about that. <laughs> not n- no no payment has been received for that pl- free plug. Yeah, um, let's talk. Uh, move quickly on, perhaps to um, the as I talked about earlier, the literary skill set that um, that 
Ulysses, well, I was going to say the requires of readers, but one thing that I found fascinating um, about a way that you talk about Ulysses is that you say that Joyce trains us how to read his novel. So it's not like he doesn't just drop us in to a place where all of the rules have changed and, you know, and leaves us completely lost. But in fact, as the books start, he kind of slowly introduces us to some of the techniques and some of the innovations that that he's going to use. Yeah. And, and you know, so right from the very beginning, I would say a reader approaching the novel, the, the first innovation that they would re- uh, kind of notice is the use of inner monologue or mm-hmm. stream of consciousness or interior monologue, however you want to, uh, whatever term you, you choose to use there. So just our, our direct uh, access to the character's thoughts in first person, in present tense. Um, that, that to me feels like the first thing that you would notice as, mm-hmm. oh, this is a bit different. Although for a contemporary reader might not feel all mm-hmm. that different from, you know, what we experience as, you know, almost like voiceovers in film, uh, sure. or television, right? Like we're, we're kind of accustomed to that kind of access to the interior of a character's, uh, mind and thoughts. Um, but what I love about Ulysses and what I've tried to point out at certain moments in my book is the way that he introduces a, um, a, a literary technique just in like a little moment, such as mm-hmm. uh, in the Hades episode, which is the sixth chapter. It's our last of kind of the introductory uh, triads, as I describe them in my book, um, with Mr. Bloom. So it's, you know, we're kind of about to depart from the the initial style of the novel mm-hmm. and the narrator can move from Mr. Bloom back a few paces to other characters and can access their conversation, uh, which Mr. Bloom, whose interiority and whose perspective has dominated those, uh, the first two episodes we're spending with him, we are seeing something that he's not seeing. We're hearing mm-hmm. something that he's not hearing. And that sort of displacement uh, of narrative perspective then takes a much firmer hold in Aeolus at the very beginning of the very next episode. Mm-hmm. So he's introduced that he can do that, that the narrator can do that, the narrative perspective can shift. He's going to you know, then push it a little bit further in Aeolus and then to a maximum uh, in the Wandering Rocks episode, the 10th episode mm-hmm. of the novel, where we're with uh, 18 different perspectives over the course of that episode and moving around, zooming in and out of different people's experiences over the course of that hour in the day. That sort of little nudge along, like, hey, watch this space. We're going to come back to this idea. But in that way, I think that Joyce is not trying to just throw us, as you say, like into uh, something that's, um, you know, into a, a deep end of all these different techniques he's going to try to nudge us along, introduce his, his innovations and prepare us for what's to come and mm-hmm. kind of train us in how to read this book and train us in some other moves that the book has as we go um, and, and inform us and in how we might be able to encounter those later uh, chapters that are fully reliant on mm-hmm. those other techniques. Yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? Not only train us, but also um, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this, but um, he also employs sort of different literary techniques as the book advances to show almost the kind of development of sophistication of the writing, but also the thoughts of the character. So the one that you um, that you talk about in the early chapters is a proliferation of adverbs. Now, anybody who has studied uh, under a kind of any sort of rigorous creative writing um, course will be told that sort of adverbs are verboten; you don't use them. And yet, you know, that's not something I wholly agree with. But um, but I think it's it. They are certainly a word that tends to get overused, perhaps, by inexperienced uh, writers. And yet. Not only is the very first word of Ulysses an adverb, you know, stately, plump Buck Mulligan, but the first, you know, f- first few dozen pages are littered with them. And I had never considered this until reading your book, but that, yeah, that is something Joyce is doing very consciously to sort of draw his readers into Stephen's uh, not quite fully formed. Uh, literary talent. 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, these are young men, these are adolescents more or less, and mm -hmm. they have a lot to learn. Uh, and they are over-reliant on, uh, adolescent tropes and mm -hmm. their, their tension as a, a, as a, you know, group of young men living together is then reflected in the style that Joyce uses. Um, mm -hmm. you know, Karen Lawrence has written really, really well about this uh, in her great book, The Odyssey of Style. Um, so that is not my idea. I've, I've borrowed that from her. And, you know, just as I've done throughout uh, my reading and writing about Ulysses, I am very eager to give, give that credit to the great <laughs> scholars who've done that work. But yeah, that kind of stylistic quirk isn't there you know, it's there to be discovered and then to be interpreted in a way that informs our understanding of these characters. It's mm -hmm. not, and in the same way that the musicality of the Sirens episode is not just there. And Joyce was insistent about this because uh, Harriet Weaver and Ezra Pound were not happy with their the first manuscript that they got of the Sirens episode mm -hmm. with those uh, that stylistic innovation and and. Uh, you know, musical qualities, they said, well, I'm, not, I'm losing the thread a little bit here. This isn't the novel that I thought we were reading. And Joyce was insistent that this was what had to be done for these mm -hmm. moments of the novel, that the style was crucial to the character, to the plot, to our understanding of what's happening with these characters. Yeah. Even to the point, I'm not sure if it's when he's talking about the siren section, he might be talking about Circe. I can't remember. You can correct me, but he even kind of says in a letter to somebody, oh yeah, that section's a bit of a, a bit of a drag or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's a different, a different uh, moment. But yeah. But uh, it is, uh, I think it's Oxen of the Sun. Uh, yeah. I, I think, Harriet, this was Harriet Weaver again, who wrote him to say uh, that it felt like we could title Oxen of the Sun Hades as well, because it feels a little <laughs> bit like going the rounds of hell. Uh, and it does. I mean, that's that's one of the episodes that I, I actually now, having worked on it and and done some heavy lifting to get ready to write about it a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, I have a real fondness for it. But that's the episode that I think even a lot of devoted Joyceans and Ulysses scholars are are pretty quick to say, yeah, I kind of skipped that one. I'm not really, I'm not going to dive into that. But I, I mean, I I find it hysterical um, and and a lot of fun. Uh, in his, that's the episode that that parodies 32 different prose styles, mm -hmm. and um, you know, none of the that episode, that chapter of the the novel. Uh, has any of the hallmarks of what we've been reading to that point. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's an entire departure uh, in terms of style um, and it departs from its own style every couple of paragraphs. So um, yeah, he, he, he knew that it wasn't always going to be popular, what he was, mm -hmm. uh, what he was putting in there, but I don't know that he was necessarily, and I think that's kind of a central tension for him is he's not trying to be popular, even as he's trying to write about, popular culture and popular people just yeah, yeah, yeah. popularity um yeah I, I suppose it's um it's quite a strange thing isn't it that the a book which is so innovative also has so is so much based on parody and pastiche in fact yeah isn't that interesting uh, and and you know some people will say that and he, he himself uh what did he say that he is uh, scissors and paste man. Um, Joyce said mm -hmm. that, that he's somebody who, who borrows and cuts out snippets of language and culture and other literary styles mm -hmm. and transforms them um, or just straight up takes them and pastes mm -hmm. them into his own work. Um, but yeah, the, the way that he uh, takes all these different styles and, and parodies and uh, to me, it feels like a, we, we may not appreciate how revolutionary that was at the time, but in, again, a, an era when there's an increasingly literate populace and, and more people are reading more, diff, more sorts of literature, mm -hmm. I think Joyce was, even as he's writing this very dense and difficult, notoriously challenging novel, he's trying to say all writing mm -hmm. is uh democratized now we can we can hold it all in the same text we can mm -hmm. hold 
uh, you know, popular sports journalism in the same work in the same episode that's going to reflect legal contract writing and also reflect uh, epic kind of mythologizing sorts of writing that he's going to say mm -hmm. all of these can coexist that we let's level culture let's no mm -hmm. longer have high and low culture let's pull it all together and add it all into the same mix yeah 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 it's, it's kind of mad that like while essentially helping found modernism he's also kind of founding postmodernism as well isn't that something i i feel like so often we yeah he he is it is the epic of modernism that he wrote mm -hmm. but it it as scholars and uh theorists have developed ideas that are core to postmodernism the application of those concepts to ulysses feels at least as uh uh, helpful as anything that was from the 1920s. I mean, it it, it is a postmodernist novel, proto postmodern, mm -hmm. in the, you know it predicts the sorts of um, th you know concepts and critical theory that that we then you know in some ways maybe developed in order to to better explain Ulysses and what it does. Mm. One thing I think we um, shouldn't get lost in the discussion of um, the kind of the techniques and the innovations and things like that is the the characters at the book's heart. Um, I mean, and so we've, we've talked, uh, we've referenced uh, Stephen and we've referenced Bloom, but we haven't said a great deal about them yet. Um, and I think one thing that is remarkable is that amongst all these innovations, we really get inside the heads of these characters. We really get to know them. We really get a sense of who they are, of, of, of what they're feeling, of what drives them, of what makes them of what makes them sad. And I, I think that's quite remarkable uh, to be able to to do both, in fact, to be able to kind of, you know, uh, pastiche, as you say, what was it, 32 different literary styles in Oxen of the Sun, while also giving us Stephen and Bloom and later Molly in as kind of completely rounded, um, rounded characters, completely real uh, people on the page. Isn't that delightful, the way that he can kind of keep that storytelling ball in the air, even as he's doing all those other things with style? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Stephen and Bloom, you know, they are they are rich, uh, interesting, problematic characters that that just get more interesting as you read them over and mm -hmm. over and over again. And you know, you. I'm curious what you said that uh, when we were speaking right before we started recording that you're reading the novel again for the first mm -hmm. time since you read it uh, at university. Mm -hmm. uh, how are you encountering Stephen and Bloom differently now as a reader a couple years uh, removed? I think that that's yeah. Tell me, how are you encountering these characters? Um, I think. I'm I'm identifying much more with Bloom than with Stephen, which I think was the uh, which was the opposite uh, twenty years ago. I think because I, I came into reading Ulysses hot out of reading and loving Portrait of the Artist, mm. and so sort of bringing all of that. Um, you know, I think the Portrait of the Artist, as any kind of uh, adolescent or young adult with artistic aspirations, it's going to be a book that touches you deeply and sort of moves you in very kind of profound levels because he he really nails down something fundamental mm. about what it is to uh to to, to be an artist um mm. and you know it's it's so hard to think myself back into my sort of 20 year old mind but i suppose my my memory of bloom is much less um much less defined than my memory of Stephen from that time. Mm. I think you know it was it was it was Stephen's book to me back then. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Now, as a kind of um, <laughs> as a forty-one-year-old father, um, suddenly there's a lot that's going on in Bloom's mind and in Bloom's life, which I can suddenly identify more with. And uh, and even though you know there's still the uh, that artistic side of me which is drawn to and identifies with with uh, with Stephen um yeah there's definitely I I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely tapping yeah. more towards the bloom in this reading 
Yeah, uh, it it does that. It you know it it's benef- it benefits from having two protagonists in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, three, if you count Molly, who is like looming over the whole novel, and then you mm-hmm. finally she gets the last word, the last episode, uh, entirely in her uh, inner monologue. But yeah, having two you know, people at different stages of their lives, 38 and 22 years old, that, that feels like, um, it's gonna, it's gonna scratch some different itches for different readers. And Mm -hmm. I, I find on, you know, rereading the book, there are moments that I remember and it helps to kind of have notes that you took in the book that you read when you were Mm -hmm. 20 and kind of look at that and think, okay, I, I didn't really understand what it meant to be, even as I was reading this when I was 20, I didn't really understand what it meant to be in that era of life. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of my frustrations with that character, well, those are probably, <laughs> I'm voicing in my notes in the margins, some of the frustrations I probably felt with myself. And, mm-hmm. you know, you approach Stephen with a little bit more of a bloomish attitude a little bit later mm-hmm. in life, and you have a bit more patience and a bit more empathy and a bit more understanding mm-hmm. uh, by virtue of the fact that you've just lived more and you yeah. can understand these characters in a different way. Um, and and I find that, that I learn about myself at different stages of life mm-hmm. as I read these these characters and, and interact with them in my mind and in my heart. Um, you know, I, I learn what, where where was I when I read when I made that note? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and how far have I come since then, or how far do I still have to go? I mean, I can't mm-hmm. wait to read this book when I'm seventy and yeah, think, yeah, yeah. you know, um, you know that the the person even in, in his thirties who wrote the guide to James Joyce's Ulysses probably didn't really understand James oh. Joyce's Ulysses because <laughs> it's going to keep changing for me, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and that that's exciting. I think that that uh, that sort of vehicle through which to experience life and to comment on life Mm -hmm. like that's what great art should should do and this novel certainly has done that for me yeah yeah yeah. you put me in mind of um many years ago i interviewed the great kind of uh countercultural figure jim haynes Mm. um and he was talking about henry miller and his encounter with particularly um tropic of cancer and Mm -hmm. how he read it as a young man and it moved him one way and then he read it as a 40 year old which was roughly the age Miller was when he wrote it. And it spoke to him in a completely different way. And then again, when I interviewed him, I think he was in his late seventies, early eighties, and he had recently reread it. And he said, you know, it's, it was fascinating reading this book of, you know, a young man, uh, sort of essentially a child to him at that point, and just seeing how it worked on him, worked on him differently. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, Good literature does that, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and Ulysses, I think, is, is certainly in the, the category of good literature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about um, a few of the um, kind of defined but also stranger uh, concepts that are at work in, in Ulysses. So uh, we talked about Stephen and Bloom. We've talked about um, the internal monologue. Uh, we've talked well, we haven't talked about, but it's clear that there is a sort of a narrator figure. But mm. there is also this figure um, who is referred to as the arranger. Mm. And this is, I think, one of the most kind of peculiar and also kind of oddly sort of frustrating things um, about about the book, actually, is that you sort of, you never feel entirely on solid ground about who is doing what to you mm. when you read it. Mm. So would you be able to just for our listeners introduce them to the concept of the arranger? Sure. Um I think that you know I'll I'll preface this by saying that there are almost surely Joyce scholars who think that I've maybe over relied on the concept of the arranger. Right. Um <laughs> it it does to me feel like a uh, a convenient concept uh for explaining at the very least the core impulse of some of the innovations of the novel um, and and not just the core impulse, but a core personality that's mm-hmm. within the novel that's different from a narrator who's telling us who's sitting down where and, you know, they're walking past this. They notice that all oh, that's great, mm-hmm. but the arranger feels far more mischievous and mm-hmm. far more. <laughs> 
interested in messing with us. Uh, you know, the, the catechism that we get in the Ithaca episode, I think, has a, a great moment, whether this is the arranger or just the novel or the text or, or the author or whoever. Um, when we get the budget, uh, mm-hmm. when the, one of the questions is or uh, prompts from the catechist in that mm-hmm. episode is compile the budget for June 16th, 1904. And it's wrong. And mm-hmm. it's, it's got all kinds of crucial omissions that feel to me, uh, if not the arranger, at least similar to the arranger's kind of mischievous little wink to say, yeah, that's not right, is it? So go back and figure it out. Go back and, and, and correct it for me. Go reread the novel and tell me where <laughs> I've, I've messed things up here. Um, that sort of bait and switch, um, you know, leading you down a path and then you start to apply, you know, you, you want to trust that the novel, because of its interest in realism and, and its careful attention to detail, you want to trust that it's going to get those sorts of things right. And so you can find yourself, well, then that, that clearly must be the budget. Well, wait a minute. No, look at that. What about that? The whole thing in the brothel? I don't yeah. think there's any of that payment registered here on the budget. Well, okay. <laughs> well, then why not? Why uh, is that omitted? Why is that omitted? And what does this say about, about objective reality and mm-hmm. any sort of um, ability to pin down a truth? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it feels to me like the novel um, in a lot of those little innovative areas and flourishes of style, um, you know, the arrangement of details mm-hmm. throughout the book that coalesce um, and knit to, are knitted together so carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we were talking about earlier, that kind of idea that the first time reader is not going to understand certain things because the other two pieces of that puzzle aren't revealed for Mm -hmm. 75 pages and then 250 pages. And then you can understand that first passage that had the first piece or actually the third piece of that puzzle, that all of the, the, that arrangement of the language in the text Mm -hmm. and the details in the text and, um, the information, uh, that, that inform this realist presentation of a day, um, Mm -hmm. it, it, that, um, all of that feels like there's a personality behind it. And, yeah. you know, um, that, that to me is how I understand the arranger, mm-hmm. uh, as the, the, the intelligence, the, the personality that's, that's making some of those moves. Because in case anybody is thinking like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe it could be a mistake. I think the sort of one thing that your book makes very clear is the attention to detail that Joyce did pay. I mean, um, the one the one example that really uh, stood out to me was um, at a moment, a piece of, um, is, that, is it newspaper or it's a betting slip? I can't remember, gets thrown in the Liffey in the river in Dublin. And it appears later in the novel. And um, I think you say it's the, the Joyce scholar, Clive Hart, yep. um, talks about the sort of this, this bit of paper, according to the Dublin Port Authority, so it would have probably moved that distance two and a half hours at high tide <laughs> that June in the Liffey. And yeah. even though, you know, perhaps one might say, OK, that's just a, that's a that's a stroke of luck on Joyce's part. The rest of the, the, the details in the novel would imply that when he makes a and again, an inverted commas mm. mistake, mm. the mistake is there for a reason. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, you know. Certainly, if somebody, you know, as Clive Hart did, you know, consulting title charts, um, if if that's the only detail that that fits and it says, oh, well, this would have been the same piece of paper and it would have been exactly here. If that's the only one, okay, fine, then that's a stroke of luck. But when there are literally hundreds of those throughout the novel, mm-hmm. it it feels like, no, this this is just so carefully put together. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that, that's part I mean, of the astonishment, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we know that he wrote, for example, to, to people to check on details, like would, would, would a man of this height be able to climb over a fence of this height? And Yeah, his Aunt Josephine was mm-hmm. a, a, a great repository of those sorts <laughs> of uh, bits of information. How many steps, how many trees are out front of this church? Um, how many steps would it take to get from here to there? And um, you know, that interest in verisimilitude, mm-hmm. um, even as he's 
messing with us in other ways. He like that care um, to to get the the time right uh, mm-hmm. and get the distances right. There's a there's a lot to be um, understood, and there's a, a really nice piece that just came out in the last issue of James Joyce Quarterly that's about time and distance and mm-hmm. and thought uh, and and how like basically words thought per second they you know there all kinds of scholars are doing interesting stuff with mm. math and modeling and and trying to to break some of those um uh you know what we otherwise we just kind of flow along with in somebody's thoughts trying to actually figure out exactly how that goes he was really attentive to all of that and yeah and yeah, it's yeah. yeah it's wonderful now patrick so your book uh the guide to james joyce's ulysses is coming out more or less as this podcast is being released. I think it's the, is it the 2nd of February publication it's, day? The it's the day? first. It's the day before. It's the yeah. Okay. Tuesday the 1st. Yeah. So the 2nd is the centenary. So we we just beat, uh, <laughs> thanks to the to the good people at Johns Hopkins University Press, they, they really hustled and it'll be out in time for the centenary. Okay. So it will be out in time. So people will be able to order it. They'll be able to get it. They can get it from Shakespeare and Company, from our website, but also from their local independent bookstores. But they might not get it before the first episode of our Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses comes out, which is uh, Will Self reading the whole of Telemachus um, for us on the the 2nd of February. So that will be out. But if people don't have your guide in hand for that day, um, before we finish, would you just be able to give people just a few tips to approaching Telemachus, uh, approaching this first chapter um, until they have your guide in hand and then can work with that? Sure. Um, I think the most crucial thing to understand uh, as they approach Telemachus is that Stephen uh, is the main character, despite Buck's charisma and the fact Mm -hmm. that he is (laughs) uh, dominant in that first episode. Um, in terms of uh, his voice is loud, his personality is big, but Stephen is the guy that we're going to be with um, mm-hmm. and, and that we should pay close attention to. And you might not be as drawn to him because he is grieving. His mm-hmm. mother has died. Uh, his mother died almost a year ago. He's just shy of that year anniversary, and he's still wearing black in mourning. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is haunted by her death in part because one of her dying wishes was for Stephen to kneel down and pray for her on Mm -hmm. her deathbed. And he refused to do so out of um, his commitment to his um, individualism and his, um, his reluctance to commit a sacrilege and to, uh, offer a false prayer that he knows in his heart would be fake. Um, mm-hmm. And that to me feels like an uh, as, as difficult as it is to understand how somebody could refuse their mother's dying wish. It is fundamentally an act of respect to mm-hmm. religiosity, to God, uh, to Christianity, to Christian traditions. Um, and I think a, an act of honesty toward his mom, he doesn't want her, his final act on, you know, with her to be a lie. Hmm. Um, he's not a religious man, or at least he's not a, a, a Christian man. Uh, so he's, he's buried beneath all of that weight and hmm. it feels heavy on his heart and on his mind as he has um he's had dreams of his mother returning to him mm-hmm. um and he is he's really in a bad place um mm-hmm. he's frustrated he's been in paris he's been called back home he left at the end of portrait to go uh, forge in the smithy of his soul the uncreated <laughs> conscience of his race uh, just grand aspirations and he's back in dublin teaching at uh what seems like a, a second tier independent school and he's not doing a ton of writing he's more or less disesteemed by the the dublin literary uh environment and and community and he's just in a bad place and, and he's, 
as um uh, as he's, you know, and he's got, he's got pretty bad roommates too. Uh, Haynes and Buck are not, are not great roommates. So, uh, yeah, right. We've all had those sorts of moments and, you know, appearing into our inner monologues in those, uh, kind of moody moments, uh, would be, would be tough, uh, not probably our shining moments. So that's where we are with Steven at the very beginning. And, uh, and it just rips off from there. Well, that's perfect. So that sets us up perfectly to to launch into Ulysses. And as I said in the introduction, I can't think of a better companion than Patrick Hastings, the guide to James Joyce's Ulysses. Once again, available from Shakespeare and Company, where we take a little bit of credit for thinking that the book may have been conceived or at least have been the the spark for the book. <laughs> came Without about. a doubt. Without a doubt. My so many so this this book would never have happened if it had not been for Shakespeare and Company. That said, if you can get it from your local independent bookstore, you know, it will be available wherever wherever you are in the world, published on the, the 1st of February. Uh, Patrick will be one of our readers uh, in our great Ulysses uh, read along. Uh, we won't reveal so which fun. which chapter, so you'll have to you'll have to wait and see for that. Um, but all that remains for me to say is Patrick Hastings, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Entirely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. Thank you.